right, well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, which is where we will be looking at where we will be this morning. Today, we are going to begin our march through the book of Romans. And I got to say, I am equally parts excited and nervous. Uh, this is a very weighty book of scripture. Uh, God has used the book of Romans in many amazing ways in individuals' lives and throughout church history. Arguably, this was uh, the book of the Bible that sparked the Protestant Reformation, which as Baptists, we would trace our heritage back to. If you had to pick one book of the Bible to summarize the whole, uh, the whole Bible, uh, Romans would be a really good pick. And as I've been soaking in it, in it this week, I've been really stretched in my study, and I'm sure I'm going to continue to be stretched. If you've read the book of Romans, if you're familiar with it, you know there's some passages in there that you make you go, huh, I wonder what that means. Uh, that's, that's, that's different. So I'm excited to work through it. Uh, but I'm also excited to see how God uses it uh, to shape us as a church, to shape us as individual Christians, and ultimately uh, point us back to Jesus. And I also want to say, uh, if you stick around here for a few decades, I promise I will go through the book of Romans again. And I can also promise you the second time will be better than this first time. So stick around for a while and uh, it'll be better. <laughs> we could spend a lifetime mining just this one book and we would never run out of theological gold. So in order to prepare us, though, to begin working through the book, uh, I wanted to take this morning and help us see the big picture. And so in order to do that, what I'd like to do today is look at some of the historical background, what was taking place in world history when the book of Romans was written that would have impacted the church at Rome. And I want us to work through the entire book this morning so that we can see the big picture. It's easy to just zone in on individual chapters in the book of Romans and wonder, well, how does, how does chapter 11 connect with chapter number 2? What's the connection there? And it's easy to sometimes think that these are just random sections or random chapters uh, but this book really is a treatise on the righteousness of God. And my main goal today is to show how all the chapters of the book really come together and work together to exalt the righteousness of God. And as we work through the book, we're going to look at key chapter or key verses in each chapter. We're also going to look at key words and phrases and themes throughout the book that will hopefully show us this is the big picture. This is the big idea that the Apostle Paul is wanting to communicate to the church at Rome. So to start us off this morning, I'm going to read all of chapter 1, as we would typically do, and then we will jump into our study this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter number 1. Uh, if you need one, there should be a black hardback one on the chairs close by you. Feel free to grab one of those and use it. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like a copy, see me afterwards, and we will love to put one into your hands to help you study God's Word. But let's begin reading Romans chapter number 1, beginning at verse number 1. The Bible says, Paul... A servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported around in all the world. 
God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to the Greek and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what, through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurities so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever amen for this reason god delivered them over to disgraceful passions their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones the men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Let's pray, and then we will jump into our study this morning. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, myself, and I'm sure many of us who are in here, our minds are full of different things, things we're excited about, 
things we're passionate about, things we're worried about, things that, uh, heavy burdens that we have on our heart. But I pray this morning that as your word goes forward, it would be a proclamation of good news. I pray that it would be a proclamation of healing and liberty. I pray that you would open our minds to understand and contemplate wondrous things from your word. Give us life and strength through your word this morning. And I pray that your church would delight in your instruction and it would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we would be righteous trees planted by flowing streams, bringing fruit to bring you glory. Amen. So as we get started, I want to give some of the historical background of what was taking place when the book of Romans was written. Uh, the book of Romans is one of the Apostle Paul's epistles. Epistle is uh, a letter that he would write to churches or that he would write to a group of Christians in a region. And he wrote these to the early churches. But there are several things that make uh, the book of Romans a unique letter. Uh, first of all, Paul did not help start the church in Rome, nor had he ever been to this church. Many of the churches that he wrote to were churches that he helped start, churches that he had been to and visited it and poured himself into these. But as we can gather from Romans chapter 1, we realize Paul had never been to this church. We don't know exactly when this church was started, but we can guess that it's been around for a while by the time Paul writes to it. Uh, when Peter is preaching uh, during Pentecost at Acts chapter number 2, we see that there are Jewish believers who lived in Rome but had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And we see that there were people who were converted at Pentecost that then went and traveled back to Rome. So it's possible that this church has been around since well before the Apostle Paul himself was actually converted. If you fast forward to Acts chapter number 18, many years later, we see that the Roman Emperor Claudius expels all Jewish people from the city of Rome in the country of Italy. In Acts 18, 1 and 2, we see two Christians specifically are mentioned. They had to leave Rome because of this edict that Emperor Claudius issued. Uh, these were Priscilla and Aquila. Roman historian uh, Suetonius tells us that this happened in A.D. 49. This expulsion out of Rome was due to strife among Jewish people, as this Roman historian tells us, over Crestus, or Christ. Now, uh, the Roman people just thought Christianity was the sect of Judaism, and because they were converting many people, they, all the Jewish people got kicked out of Rome. Well, five years later, in AD 54, Emperor Claudius dies, and the Jewish people are allowed to return back to Rome. We learn this because in chapter 16 of Romans, Paul greets Priscilla and Aquila at the church. So we see by the time Paul writes this, these people had already come back to the city of Rome. Now, as these Jewish believers would have been returning to their church after being gone for five years, they probably found that it had become a mainly Gentile church. And this seems to have created some tension in this early church. Paul addresses this throughout the book, specifically in chapters 2, chapters 11, and then chapters 14 and 15. Now, I don't think that this was a major division in the church that Paul is addressing like we see in Corinth, because in the book of Corinthians, Corinthi Corinthians man, can't get that word out. In the book of Corinthians, Paul specifically calls out their division. He doesn't specifically call out division in the church of Rome through the book of Romans, but he several times, specifically in those chapters I just mentioned, does address the seeming tension between the Gentile believers and the Israelite believers. The book of Romans was written just a few years after the Jewish people were allowed to return to Rome in A.D. 
57. So just two or three years later, these Jewish believers are returning, and they have found their church looks a lot different, and the culture is a lot different. Now, even though Paul didn't start this church, and even though he had never been there, the Apostle Paul was uniquely suited to help this church. Paul was born, we find, in the book of Acts in the city of Tarsus, which was a Roman province in Cilicia. He would have been well-versed in Greek and Roman culture because he was a Roman citizen from birth. These were prominent Roman towns and provinces in the Roman Empire. So he would have grown up very familiar and well-versed in Greek and Roman culture. The Bible also tells us that he studied under the well-known rabbi named Gamaliel. He was raised according to the strictness of Jewish law, and he himself became a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he tells us. Now, like most Jews who were dispersed around the world, the Apostle Paul had two names. One was his traditional Jewish name, Saul. The other one was his Gentile name, Paul. Now, the name Paul wasn't given to him when he became a believer. That wasn't his name that he got when he was converted. That would have been his Gentile name that he had his entire life that he would have used when he was in Gentile towns. So his upbringing in Roman culture made him the ideal candidate to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That was the main focus of his ministry. But as a Pharisee, he knew the Old Testament inside and out. In fact, he would have known his Bible better than probably any of us would have. His upbringing and education put him in a unique position to help heal these tensions that existed in this church, not to mention simply unpack God's big redemption story to help us get God's big picture of his unfolding plan, which he does throughout Romans. He was able to see and deeply understand the big picture of what God was doing. In fact, throughout the book of Rome, Paul quotes the Old Testament repeatedly. I'm going to list all the Old Testament books that he quotes in Romans. In the book of Romans alone, Paul quotes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. He quotes Nehemiah, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. He quotes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's more than half of the Old Testament books. The man knew his Bible. And one of the reasons for this, one of the reasons he relies so much on the Old Testament, we see right in the very first sentence of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it's the first sentence of the book. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so the apostle Paul wants to make it very clear that the gospel, God's plan of redemption, had been God's plan all along. Paul goes to great lengths to demonstrate that the gospel of Jesus, this was God's plan from the very beginning. And as he begins laying that foundation, he begins laying that even as he introduces himself in the beginning of the book. Now, as he begins diving into the letter, which we could say is, it's a letter, that's true, but we could really call it a treatise of God's righteousness by faith, he jumps on that theme right away. We see that in verses 16 and 17. In fact, many would say that these are the theme verses for the entire book, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it, is, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, he's quoting the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. 
It's in these first few verses that I want to look at one of the key themes throughout the book, arguably the theme throughout the book, and that is the righteousness of God. Now, in a broad sense, righteousness is the state of a person as he ought to be. It means to be righteous. It's a conditional that is acceptable to God. It means integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, and the correctness of thinking, feeling, or acting. As Paul uses this word, this would have been a very rich Old Testament word that had a lot of meaning to him. The Hebrew word for righteous or righteousness is sadek. It was very often used to describe God or the Messiah. This word was used throughout the Old Testament to remind the people of Israel that God was a covenant-keeping God, that he is righteous and he does what is just. He has integrity. God is righteous. What's also neat about this word in the Old Testament is that it was used to describe Melchizedek, who was a pre-incarnate Christ. A pre-incarnate Christ means this is Jesus before he was born in a manger in the Gospels. He appears several times throughout the Old Testament. Now, the name Melchizedek means my king is Sadek. My king is righteous. And so what we see throughout the Old Testament, even in the person of Jesus, is that God is righteous. So what Paul is helping us understand throughout the book of Romans is that righteousness, this description of God that has been used for thousands of years, is now ours through faith in Jesus. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are now made acceptable to God. Because of what Jesus did, we now meet God's standard. What is true of Jesus is now true of us as believers. We have the righteousness of God. We have been made new so that now we can live like Jesus. And throughout this book, we're given a theology of righteousness. We see God's righteousness in relationship to the nation of Israel. We are shown what the practice of righteousness looks like and the rich history that this word, that this idea or concept has. Now, once Paul lays that foundation for us, he begins the first main section of the book, which extends from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter number 5. Paul shows us in those chapters the universal problem of sin and the only solution to that problem, justification by faith. Now, in the remainder of chapter number 1, Paul shows us how the Gentile world is guilty before God. We read those verses just a few moments ago. He reveals that the lost world, he reveals their idolatry and the depravity that that idolatry leads to. Verse 25 sums it up incredibly well. It says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served what had been created instead of the creator, who was praised forever and ever. Amen. But Paul doesn't stop with the Gentiles. He also points out as he moves into chapter number two that the Israelites are equally lost. Right off the bat in chapter number two, he makes it clear that they do the very things that they're judging the Gentiles for. Romans 2, verses 9 through 11, the Bible says, There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. He uses that phrase often in connection to justification, but he also uses that phrase in connection to judgment. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also for the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. So what Paul is helping us understand is that both Jew and Gentile are equally in need of a Savior. 
And as he is writing this church, who is experiencing some, t- some of those tensions, he says, look, all of us, Jew and Gentile, stand in equal need of Jesus. Then throughout chapter 2, he asks a series of rhetorical questions to reveal the Israelites also need a new heart. Just like the Gentiles need a new heart, he says, so do you. And he asks these questions to reveal that. And to reveal that, look, you guys can't hide behind the law. You guys have the Torah, yes, you've been given the word of God, yes, but you can't hide behind that. He says even that God's name has been blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the Jewish people's self-righteousness and hypocritical spirit. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, anticipating the pushback that he's going to get, he starts off chapter 3 by answering the question, what advantage then do the Jews have? What's the benefit? And he goes on to tell them, there's a huge advantage. You are entrusted with the very words of God. But are they any better off? Well, no, because all are guilty under sin. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 say, what then? Are we any better off? Referring to his fellow Israelites, He says, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Then as we move through chapter 3, we come across another theme that pops up a few times throughout the book of Romans, and that is the law. The law largely comes into play here in chapter 3 as well as chapter number 7. Now, it's helpful to know that Paul uses the word law to describe two different things uh, throughout the book of Romans. Sometimes he uses it to describe the Torah. The Torah was the first five books of the Old Testament and was their narrative of their initial history. That was what he calls the Torah. He quotes all five of of those books throughout this letter. But he also uses the word law to describe the 613 commands that are found in the Torah. Often this reference is phrased as the works of the law, which is what he's talking about here in chapter number three. Now, the reason he brings up the law is to show us the works of the law's purpose. What was the purpose for those 613 commands? The purpose was it reveals sin. It reveals we need a Savior. He says this in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in the sight of by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So Paul is actually elevating the law. Oftentimes in modern Christianity, the law gets a bad rap, but the law is a good thing. It's a good thing because it reveals our need for a Savior. It shows us that we are lost. It shows us that we need to be saved, and it brings that reality to our awareness. But what it does not do is it does not give us God's righteousness. That's never what it was intended to do. It simply reveals our need for it. God's righteousness, Paul tells us, comes through faith in Jesus. And he wants to show us how the entire Old Testament is actually telling us this. Now, when Paul was writing, they didn't call the Old Testament the Old Testament like we do. They would often refer to the, what we call the Old Testament as the Law and the Prophets, or the Holy Scriptures, or the Scriptures. We see Paul doing this in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. He says, but now, apart from the law, that's the 613 commands, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law, that's the Torah, and the prophets. 
The law and the prophets is kind of shorthand for the Old Testament. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there's no distinction. So he's helping these people understand obeying those 613 commands is not what gets you the righteousness of God. In fact, the Torah, God's entire Old Testament narrative, shows us that it's through faith in the Messiah. So in these first three chapters, we see all of mankind's universal need for a Savior. Paul has established everybody that has ever walked on planet Earth is in the universal need for a Savior. Paul also is showing us that God's righteousness is found through faith, not works. What good news is that? We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. It's ours through faith. And as we move into chapter number four, Paul gives an example of being made righteous apart from the law without keeping the commands of the law by showing us that Abraham, this patriarch of the faith, was considered righteous through his faith in God's promise, not in obeying the law. Chapter 4, verse number 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. This is what it means to be justified. This is another key word in the book of Romans. The word justified simply means to be made righteous. We are justified. We are made righteous when we place our faith in Jesus. Chapter 4 is just like one long sermon illustration that proves a point Paul is making in chapter number 3. And then as we move into chapter number 5, he further unpacks the idea of justification by showing us how in Adam all are under sin. And now how in Christ we are justified and now have eternal life. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, So then as through one trespass, that was Adam, Adam's sin, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, that's the life of Jesus, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, as Paul is explaining this, he says grace reigns because sin reigns. We see sin reigning, and Paul's telling us that, hey, because sin is reigning, grace is going to reign even more. But to make sure we don't get the wrong idea, <laughs> Paul, he heads off another question here. He does this in chapter number 6, verses 1 and 2. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? Now we know, he goes on to say, absolutely not. <laughs> but do you see the logic and why he would want to address that? Hey, sin is reigning. It's everywhere we look. There's this universal condemnation. It's this universal problem. But as a result, we see grace reigning even more. So a carnal mind might think, well, if sin is how I get grace, let's go on keeping sinning. But Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what grace does. Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we, who died to sin, live in it? And as Paul concludes chapter 5, he is concluding the section that deals largely with our justification. And then from chapter 6 through the first half to chapter number 8, he is now giving us a theological look at our sanctification. So now that you have been made new, now that you have been given the righteousness of God, how can we as believers live out that righteousness? He hasn't gotten to what it's looking like yet. He's just showing us this is how you can live like Jesus. So how is it possible for us to do that? Well, chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul's going to answer that for us. As we just read in the first few verses of chapter 6, 
we see that because we have eternal life in Christ, we're now dead to sin. Because we have been justified, we are no longer servants or slaves to sin, but we have been made servants of God. Verse 22 sums this up beautifully for us in chapter 6. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. I love this verse because he shows us the whole big picture of our salvation. We get our justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification. And now as we move into chapter 7, he shows us how sin uses the law and the problem of the sin that still remains in us. The new us loves God. The new, create, the new creature us that we have been made, the new righteous us, the holy us, loves God and loves what is right. But Paul tells us in Romans 7 that there's a different law that's waging war inside of us. And as Paul continues to explain our sanctification, he shows us the battle between our new nature and our flesh. Chapter 7 is actually really helpful because it shows us that even though we have been made new, even though we are righteous and we are holy, sometimes we're still a hot mess. <laughs> our physical selves still struggle with sin. I think some of the key verses in Romans 7 are 22, 23, and 24, where Paul says, for in my inner self, I delight in God's law. That's the new him. That's the redeemed him. That's the glorified him. That's the new creature him. In my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, his flesh, his physical self, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man am I. Who is going to rescue me from this body of death? Have you ever experienced that struggle before? Like, man, I don't want to do this, but it's so hard to not do this. I want to do what's right, but I so often find myself doing what's wrong. I know I shouldn't do it. I'm grieved when I do it. But there's still this almost physical compulsion towards it. Don't beat yourself up. The Apostle Paul struggled with that too. And Paul tells us we are not without hope. And we are not without help. At the end of chapter 7, and as we move into chapter number 8, Paul answers the question, who's going to rescue me? <laughs> I'm a mess. <laughs> who's going to help? He answers that question. I thank God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. Jesus rescues us. As we move into Romans chapter number 8, we see that we now have the Holy Spirit inside of us who leads us to life, who leads us to peace, who leads us to holy living. And because we are sons and daughters of God, we are delivered from bondage. So the reason we can say no to sin and yes to obedience, the reason we can say no to temptation and say yes to holiness is because you have been delivered from that bondage. You are now a son and daughter of God and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you who is empowering you to kill that sin. Romans 8 verse number 2. The law of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're free from that sin, brother and sister. It's got no more hold over you. Verses 12 through 15, chapter 8. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. When you feel that temptation, it feels physical, doesn't it? It's like this compulsion. It's like this addiction. You feel like you have to do it or you're going to burst. Paul says, you're not obligated to that anymore. That, that, that compulsion, that feeling, that obligation you feel in your flesh, he's like, it, it doesn't hold you down anymore. There's no more obligation to it. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. 
But if you live by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's spirits are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, we receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. When you feel that temptation, you now have the Holy Spirit inside of you who is empowering you to say no to that temptation and leading you to cry out to your Abba Father for help. This is why we can live out the righteousness of God. And so as we transition from the middle of chapter 8, Paul takes our focus here and he lifts our focus from our present sanctification to our future glorification, which gives us hope in our present sanctification. And it actually helps us understand the struggle that we saw in Romans chapter 7 a little bit more. Paul shows us that the struggle we sometimes feel in the sanctification process is our bodies crying out for the full adoption. Our salvation is not yet complete. There's still more coming. Our physical bodies, our physical selves, have not yet been glorified. They have not yet been fully redeemed. That's why we still get sick. That's why we still die. That's why we still get hurt and we still face temptations. Paul tells us in the middle of Romans 8 that all of creation is groaning out and waiting to be made new. But we have the Holy Spirit. But there is still longing for more. Verses 19 through 23. Paul says, For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's Son to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, referring back to Adam. And the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Holy Spirit as first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our body. So Paul is giving us hope in our struggle, in the sanctification, in the groaning. He's saying, look, the reason that groaning is there is because there's more coming. And it's going to be glorious. And one day that groaning will be finished. As Paul ends Romans chapter 8, he assures us that even as we groan, even as we struggle, even as we wait the completion of our salvation, we are forever secure in God's love. I love it. Our groaning, our struggle does not make us less secure. Paul goes on to say that nothing can separate us from God's love. So yes, there's groaning. Yes, there's struggle. But brother and sister, you're forever secure in Christ. And as Paul repeatedly demonstrates, this was God's plan from the very beginning. But this would have raised some questions for his early listeners. If this was God's plan from the very beginning... What was God's plan for the nation of Israel, specifically in their current state of unbelief? As Paul concludes unpacking a theology of sanctification, as he moves into chapter number 9, he revisits and further answers a question that he proposed to us in chapter number 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. What then? If some were unfaithful, were their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Now remember, he's speaking specifically about the nation of Israel. Now, he briefly answered that question in chapter number 3, but he's going to further unpack his answer in chapter 9, 10, and 11. This is why Paul breaks from his usual routine, from going from 
theological truths immediately into practical outflow of those truths. Now, at first glance, one might think chapters 9, 10, and 11 are just kind of randomly stuck in the middle of the book. But Paul is actually helping us further understand our security in Christ. You see, God made promises to the nation of Israel that had not yet been fulfilled. Unconditional promises that he made to them that they were still waiting their fulfillment. Those promises included their national salvation. They included their worldwide restoration. And yet those haven't happened. The nation of Israel is currently in a state of unbelief. So what about those promises God made to them? Obviously, their early readers would have been like, um, we've got questions. Did their faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Have those promises been ignored? Is God going to be unfaithful to them because they didn't get it right? If God ignored those promises, what about the promise he just made to us, <laughs> right? Now, Paul doesn't want us to doubt the promises of God that he just made to us because of Israel's unfaithfulness and current unbelief. So he addresses God's righteousness to the nation of Israel. In chapter 3, verse 3, again, he's referring to the Jewish people. Paul asks, what then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Verse 4, he answers, absolutely not. And as we, Paul begins to further answer this question in chapter 9, he first of all expresses his anguish over his fellow Israelites who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Heartbreaking verses. He literally says, if I could, I would give them my own salvation and be accursed from Christ. There is such a deep longing that he has. And then he gives a brief history lesson that demonstrates how throughout the history of the nation of Israel, God has chosen some to believe him and others to reject him so that his glory can be demonstrated. Now, Romans 8 tells us that predestination is based on foreknowledge. God knew who would reject him and who wouldn't. And based on that foreknowledge, he predestined some and he rejects others. Romans uh, 8.29 says, for those he foreknew, he predestinated. Paul tells us in Romans 9 that God chose Jacob and rejected Esau based on his predetermined election to, bring, to begin his covenant family. Paul is reminding us that just because a person is an ethnic Israelite does not intrinsically mean that they're going to be a faithful member of the covenant family. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, Paul says, Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be chased, traced through Isaac. Just because of their current unbelief, that doesn't mean God's word has ultimately failed this nation. Paul also reminds us how God raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart in the book of Exodus for the purpose of declaring his power to the world. Romans 9, 17 and 18. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And in the same way God did with Jacob and Esau, in the same way God did with Pharaoh, God used Israel's rejection of the Messiah so that the gospel could go into the Gentile world. Now, knowing this was going to raise eyebrows, right? It's probably raising some eyebrows with us this morning. Paul quickly reminds his readers and us that we are not God, and he is completely just in all his actions. Verses 14 and 15. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
I will show compassion on whom I will have compassion. In verses 20 and 21, he says, on the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? <laughs> Sometimes I want to use that with my kids. Who are you to talk back to me? I gave you life, child. Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over to clay to make the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? So Paul's helping us understand as much as we wrestle through these chapters, as much as we sometimes don't understand them, we're not God. And to some degree, he's kind of like, I don't even know that you really get to ask the question. Now, he explains it for us. He does a good job of unpacking it for us, how God uses this, but he doesn't answer all the tensions that we feel in these chapters. You see, from a human perspective, Israel as a whole rejected their Messiah. Paul tells us because they thought right, the righteousness of God could be achieved through following the law. That's what was happening from an earthly perspective. perspective. They reject the Messiah because they think they could get God's righteousness by following the law. But from an eternal perspective, God knew about and even prophesied their rejection and used it so that the Gentiles could have the opportunity to experience the righteousness of God. We begin to see this in chapter 9, and then he makes it very clear for us in chapter number 11, verses 23 through 26 of chapter 9. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he had prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called? not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea. So Paul's like, this has been God's plan since way back, hundreds of years before. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. He's referring to the nation of Israel and to Gentiles. Verses 30 through 32. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes through faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not yet achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And as we saw the last few weeks, that last stumbled over the stumbling stone, that last phrase has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. What Paul is demonstrating is how God was able to orchestrate all these events so that even people's rejection actually accomplished his person. And Paul is helping us understand that God was not unfaithful to Israel. This was all part of his divine plan. God even predicted it all the way back in Hosea and Isaiah. After Paul reminds us of the history, and as we move into chapter number 10, Paul communicates his earnest desire for his fellow Israelites who don't believe to believe. He's like, I'm, I, he's just, he's so passionate. He's just like, I so want them to come to know Christ. But he also laments that as a whole, the nation of Israel has rejected their Messiah. But however, as we move into chapter number 11, we see that their rejection is not final. And just like God in his mercy chose Jacob, God has chosen a remnant of Israelites who will believe in him one day. He alluded to this in chapter 9. He unpacks this more for us in chapter number 11, that there is a remnant. The remnant nation of Israel will one day accept Jesus as Messiah. And the promises that he made beforehand to the nation of Israel that have not yet been fulfilled will one day come true. 
Romans 11, verse number 1. I asked then, has God rejected his people? We might be tempted to think at this point, yes, but he says, absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He's making this very clear. He's talking specifically about the nation of Israel. Verses 11 and 12. I asked then, have they stumbled so as to fall? That means, are they just done? Is their rejection permanent? Is their rejection as a nation final? He says again, absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches to the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, so because of their unbelief, because of their failure, these riches come to the world, riches for the Gentiles, the gospel, salvation, righteousness of God. He goes on to say, how much more will their fullness bring? Paul is helping us understand there's going to be a moment when Israel accepts their Messiah as a nation. He's promising us this, that there will be a remnant. There will be a day when the nation of Israel accepts Jesus as their Messiah, and it's going to be a beautiful thing. He doesn't give us all the details here. But he said, how much more will their fullness bring? It's going to be a glorious moment. But in the meantime, Paul says regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. Not our enemies, they're enemies of the gospel because they don't believe in it. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. Since God's gracious gifts and callings are irrevocable. He's saying, look, I made promises to this nation that will come true. As you once disobeyed, God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience. So they too now have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. God used their disobedience to bring salvation to the Gentiles, and this was his plan all along, but their transgression isn't permanent. There's coming a moment. God's not done with his nation of Israel yet. Their current state of unbelief does not mean God is unfaithful. Doesn't mean God's promise has failed. In fact, Paul is saying the opposite is actually true. And just like God's promise has not failed the nation of Israel, his promise to us will not fail. And I love the way he ends chapter number 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that Paul has shared all this rich theology, Paul has unpacked for us. This is why we can receive the righteousness of God. This is why you can live out the righteousness of God. This is how you can know for certain that you can trust God and his promises now in the remainder of the book. He's going to show us this is what it looks like to live out the righteousness of God. Now that you know you have it, now that you know how you can live it out, I'm going to show you what it looks like to live it out. This is God's righteousness in action. And I love what we see at the beginning of verse or chapter number 12, verse 1. This is why he starts 12-1 with therefore. Therefore, because of everything we just looked at in 1 through 11. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of all the mercies of God we just unpacked in 1 through 11, I urge you, I plead with you, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Some translations say this is your reasonable service. That word true or reasonable, it's the Greek word logikos. It means logical. Paul's like, as we consider 
all the amazing realities of God's righteousness and his preordained plan and the mercy he has demonstrated on the entire world, even though they deserve his just wrath, as we consider all that, it only makes sense to live for him. It's, it's, what else is there? There's nothing else to do. These Jewish and Gentile believers can come together in unity because God has saved them and he has gifted them, as we see in chapter number 12. Paul then lays out for us what these giftings look like on a street level. And in chapter 13, he shows us how we should interact with and honor our government. As believers, in view of the mercies of God, this, is, this needs to be your attitude and your actions towards your government. He reminds us that even though we may disagree with those in office, the government is a gift of common grace that God has given to us as humans so we can be thankful for them. And in chapter 13, he also tells us that all these commands, they're all summed up into loving your neighbor. 13.9, the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, and any other commandment are all summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then in chapter 14, he again addresses some of the apparent tension between the Israelite believers and the Gentile believers trying to live together in a local church. Imagine this community coming to live together, and they're just about as opposite as they can be. And not only are they opposite, they're like repulsed by each other's differences. He's saying, look, this is how you can actually come together as a local church and live in unity. He tells them, don't judge each other over whether or not you observe or don't observe holidays. Like, guys, that's not a big deal. Don't judge each other over that. It's like he's, he's pleading with them, don't get hung up on these smaller issues. Instead, pursue peace. Pursue Jesus. Jesus has made you at peace with one another, so pursue it with each other. If you differ, he says, on culturally important but non-essential issues, just respect each other's differences and love each other. 14.9, so then, or 14.19, so then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. If these holidays are not going to promote peace among you, don't pursue it. Don't talk about it. Pursue Jesus. Don't focus on these non-essential things. And as Paul begins to wrap up this section that deals with God's righteousness on display in our lives, he calls us to live to please others for the glory of God. 15.1. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Verses 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. I just, I just want to pause right there. He's saying God can help you live in harmony with one another. In fact, he's given you endurance and encouragement to do it. Sometimes it takes endurance to dwell in harmony with each other because we're all different. But Paul's like, there's no excuse because God has given you the endurance you need. Paul, God has given you the encouragement you need to grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. We talk about what it means to glorify God a lot. It means the way we live our lives displays his greatness. It displays his value. It displays his worth. And Paul is helping us understand that when we live in harmony, when we pursue peace, when we don't divide over non-essentials, but we unite around Jesus and our faith, that glorifies God. That displays to the world why Jesus is worth following. And I love how Paul ends the book in chapter 16. As Paul wraps up chapter 16, he takes time to honor all these people who he knows and respects. Even though he's never been to this church, he knows many of its members. 
And as you read names in chapter 16 and you learn little details about people like Phoebe and Rufus, what a name, right? (laughs) So glad I'm not named Rufus. We realize, though, that these are real people. These are real people, just like you and me that Paul is writing to. This was a real church. They had real struggles, and they had real victories. The whole world knew about their faith. What a testimony. They had real struggles, they had real victories, and God was with them. This isn't just some obscure document that was written for the theoretical. Let me give you a bunch of spiritual theory that might help you maybe. No, he's talking to real people. This was a real letter written to real people, and it's relevant for us today. All of these pieces come together into a profound epistle that has impacted the Christian faith for centuries. So as we conclude this morning, let me encourage you to read the book of Romans in its entirety this week. Depending on how fast you read it, take you 30 minutes to an hour. That's not a lot of time. Some of us might have the time in our day to read the book of Romans once a day all week. And if you can do that, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Some of us may only have the time to get through it once this week, and that's okay. I understand. Some of us got a bunch of little kids at home, and finding 30 minutes to sit and read would be like (laughs) paradise. Take the time you can get. But read the book of Romans this week. Let me encourage you to soak in it. Let me encourage you to sit with it. The parts you don't understand, let me encourage you to do what Paul does at the end of Romans 11 and just, as one theologian calls it, hit a wall of glory. Like, I don't understand this. But God, the fact that you're so much bigger than me and I can't think the way you think, that's why I worship you. Even though I don't understand, God, this is, allow that misunderstanding or a lack of understanding to be a reminder of why God is worthy of your worship. If we could figure God out, he would be less than us because half the time we don't even, we can't even figure ourselves out. Like, I can't even figure out my five-year-old, okay? The reason God is worthy of worship is because he is so much bigger than we are. And so as you sit with these, allow the message to soak in. Allow the reality that you have been made righteous by God because of faith in Jesus to really sink in. Sit with Romans 8. Remind yourself that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And if God didn't even spare his own son, how is he going to spare you anything that you ever need? The reality is you don't need anything because God has given you everything. Sit with those realities this week. Read the book of Romans this week. Soak in its message. And next week, we will dive into chapter number one. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner being through the Spirit so that Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. Lord, I pray that as we study this book, that it would help your love and your righteousness come alive in us. I pray that the book of Romans would help us to be rooted and firmly established in your love so that we could comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of your love from which we will never be separated. I pray that as your Holy Spirit awakens our heart to your love, that we, that our lives would model what we see in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. Lives that pursue peace, lives that declare the glory of God. And in our ever-divided world, I pray that we as your church would be united around you. We pray these things in your name.